when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. England entered its third national lockdown this week following the rapid spread of a new strain of coronavirus and the threat the health service would be overwhelmed. We've got 50% more coronavirus inpatients in our hospitals now than we had at the peak of the April 1st wave. And that is true in every region in the country now, more COVID inpatients than back in April. And that number is accelerating very, very rapidly. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, I'll be looking at why the UK was forced into another lockdown, as you heard Simon Stevens, head of NHS England, discussing at the top, how long it's likely to last and why everything now relies on the vaccine rollout. Joining me to discuss are health editor Sarah Neville and science editor Clive Cookson. And later, we'll be diving into Boris Johnson's political challenges from the worsening COVID situation, the chaos over the reopening and closure of schools, the decision-making process in number 10, and where the PM's political instincts are pulling him. Political editor George Parker and chief political columnist Robert Shrimsley will be discussing. So with plenty on the agenda, we'll head straight into the main topic of the week. The UK has been struggling in its battle against a new strain of COVID-19 that is spreading rapidly, producing some truly alarming figures. The number of positive tests a day are now well over 50,000 and deaths from coronavirus are running at over 1,000 a day. According to scientific experts, it's now baked in that the UK's total death rate from the disease will surpass 100,000. It's therefore no surprise that Boris Johnson put the UK into another lockdown. The Prime Minister had admitted for some days that the tiering system of restrictions wasn't working and tougher actions would be required. The legal stay-at-home orders have returned for at least seven weeks, but all that depends on the rollout of the vaccine. The weeks ahead will be the hardest yet, but I really do believe that we're entering the last phase of the struggle because with every jab that goes into our arms, we are tilting the odds against covid and in favour of the British people. But for now, I'm afraid you must once again stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. Well, Sarah, welcome back to the podcast. There was a rather sombre note from Boris Johnson when he addressed, I think, 26 million people on Monday with that message. Why has the UK's coronavirus got so much worse in the past week or so? Was it the Christmas mixing? Is it this new strain of the virus? Or is it something else? Well, I think perhaps one of the most ominous things to realise is that we haven't yet seen the impact of the Christmas mixing. We're only just now beginning to see people coming into hospital. I noticed an intensive care doctor tweeting that she had just seen her first case who had contracted an extremely serious case of the disease 
because of a family get-together on Christmas Day, but we're still very much in the foothills of that, given the normal time lag between infection and hospitalisation, which can easily take three weeks. So we can't explain what we're seeing at the moment purely by that possibly ill-judged decision to allow some very limited Christmas mixing to continue. But I think absolutely key to what we're seeing is this very transmissible new variant on the coronavirus, which was first identified by epidemiologists, I think, in September, but which has only emerged as a really serious issue since December. Clive can tell us far more about the science of this, but the practical implications for the NHS have proved to be extremely serious. This variant is spreading extraordinarily rapidly. We've seen some very dire warnings. You heard what Simon Stevens said in that clip. A leaked document from the NHS in London suggested that their hospitals were, under some scenarios, very close to being entirely overwhelmed. We're increasingly seeing hospitals have to stop all routine surgery, something that happened during the first wave and which has created an enormous backlog, which the health service is still dealing with, even as now an additional backlog starts to build up from all the routine care that's being cancelled again. Well, Clive, please do tell us about this new strain. And there's actually not just one new strain, there's several new strains. There's been a lot of focus on this new British strain that emerged, I think it was in the Kent and London area, and that really saw this boost in cases. But we also need to talk about this new South African strain that some folks I've spoken to in Whitehall this week are incredibly worried about and the impact it could have on the National Health Service and the prospect of lockdowns. Well, as you say, there are several new variants emerging. Of course, this virus, like all viruses, is mutating the whole time. What's worrying about these new strains is the number of new mutations they carry. The UK one has about 17 genetic changes, which is much more than had been seen before. The South African variant also carries about 20 mutations. And one effect of a group of these mutations is indeed to make it more infectious. Now, scientists and modelers are still working to get a figure on how much more infectious it is. Neil Ferguson's modeling group, Imperial, is centering down on 60 to 70% more transmissible. And that has made a big difference to the way it's spreading. The South African strain, which emerged separately, carries some of the same mutations and some different mutations. And the reason some people are more worried about the South African strain is that its mutations appear to increase the risk that the antibodies that you get if you're previously infected or vaccinated against COVID may not recognize it so well. Not wanting to worry listeners too much, there's also a new strain in Rio in Brazil about which less is known scientifically but it too is causing a lot of concern, I'm afraid. So this is the reason why Boris Johnson has put the country into lockdown. Sarah, you mentioned some of the figures there about the pressure the NHS is under London, the risks of beds being overwhelmed and all the rest of it. And we saw that the four chief medical officers of the UK moved us into level five, which says there is a real risk of the health service being overwhelmed within 21 days. 
Will the lockdown avoid that? And what does that actually mean for the health service to be overwhelmed? I guess fundamentally, it would mean some very hard decisions having to be taken about who would receive treatment. The NHS leadership has always pushed back very hard at the suggestion that during the peak in April, they were deciding not to treat some very elderly people or people whose prospects of survival were low. But I think there's no question that some of those decisions were taken on the ground, certainly not at the level of a sort of national mandate. And we can expect to see more of that. The other point is that we're actually going into this period with significantly fewer beds even than we normally have. We've progressively reduced our bed base per head of population over the last 30 years. The intent was to focus much more care in the community and not in hospitals. But of course, in a situation like this, that is coming home to roost. And you can see how we're comparing with some other countries on that. Germany, for example, has many more beds per head than we do. But the other element this particular winter is that the very tough requirements of infection control mean that fewer beds can actually be used. People obviously have to be kept apart. We're in a very different universe than we were last winter. But of course, if we flip this around, this is the very dire situation we're in at the moment and nobody thinks it's going to get better before it's going to get worse, as you said, Sarah, because of that Christmas mixing and how that filters through. But on the upside, we can turn towards the vaccine now. The UK is in a pretty good position in terms of having the highest number of coronavirus vaccines purchased per head of any other country and is starting to roll them out quite quickly. Nadim Zahawi, who is the vaccine minister, has been out and about this week saying we are ready to get it out there as quickly as possible to everyone. We need to get on with this and do it as quickly but as safely as possible, which is why, again, I commend the NHS for the plan that they've put in place. The military are embedded in the in the team. So it is a coming together uh, uh, of you know, the nation to deliver this. It is a stretching target, no doubt, very stretching target. But I'm confident that you know, with this plan that the NHS have put together, we will deliver this. Well, Clive, there's a lot of those words from Nadeem Zahawi we've heard from the government this week. The fact that there is an ambitious plan. Boris Johnson wants to get 14 million people vaccinated by the middle of February to lift the lockdown measures. The military has been involved in trying to get this thing out there. So far, the UK has vaccinated 1.3 million people, which is generally seen as a good start, but it's nowhere near the numbers you need to lift the lockdown by middle of February. So what's your view on how quickly this thing can pick up pace? I think it can pick up pace quite quickly. One interesting aspect of picking up pace is the idea that was first floated um, in the middle of December of what's called first doses first. In other words, to give everyone a first dose as quickly as possible and not worry too much about when they get their second necessary booster. When that was first suggested, a lot of the purists said, oh no, that's not been proven in clinical trials. That's not what the regulators are thinking about. But now, given the urgency of the situation, I think this idea of postponing second doses but not doing away with them altogether will really help the speed up 
the program. There are so many different elements here that could go wrong. Shortages of glass vials, for example. If the filling equipment should jam, factories don't run smoothly. But I think if things go right, the government's target that by mid-February, all the people over 70 who want to be vaccinated and all healthcare and other frontline care workers who want to be vaccinated will have their jabs. I think that's achievable. Sarah, there's been something of a bit of a blame game going on about the delivery of this. And it was quite an embarrassing moment this week for Matt Hancock, who went to a doctor's surgery to oversee and welcome the first deliveries of the Oxford University AstraZeneca vaccine. And that GP surgery didn't actually get the vaccine because it was delayed. And you've heard the manufacturers saying, well, we can produce two million doses a week and it's up to the government to deliver it. And the government saying, well, we can deliver two million doses a week, but they've got to manufacture it. So where do you think the fault really lies? Or is it just the fact this thing is really complex? I suppose the thing that really struck me was Boris Johnson's decision to give that mid-February target, as Clive said, because let's face it, this is a government that hasn't tended to do terribly well when it set grand ambitions. You know, we were told that 100% of coronavirus tests would be being returned within 24 hours by, I think, the end of June. Well, There have been times when that's actually slipped as low as 15%. So there is clearly a degree of confidence within government that this is a target they can meet. But I wasn't altogether surprised at Matt Hancock's, as you say, embarrassing situation when he turned up at the surgery and they didn't have the vaccine because the day before I'd been talking to GPs on the ground who were expressing concerns that the consignments that they'd been promised had not turned up because at the moment, the government is operating on what's called a push model. Surgeries don't ask for specific amounts of vaccine. They're told this is what you're going to receive. Sadly, a number of them are not receiving that promised volume. So there is good reason to feel that this is going to get better. We're only just beginning seriously seeing the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine rolling out en masse. And of course, The great thing about that vaccine, unlike the Pfizer-BioNTech one, is that it can be kept in much less demanding storage conditions. It is really much more tailor-made for a rollout to individual surgeries and care homes. So, you know, we keep hearing this word used in government and Whitehall game changer, but this will underpin a big acceleration in the rollout of vaccines. And certainly, as you mentioned, Seb, this blame game, the NHS leadership is really stating that the only rate limiting factor for them is the amount of vaccine they get. So they are being very bullish about their ability to get into patients' arms every single dose the manufacturers can give them. Now, I think there are questions to be asked about where some of these vaccine doses have gone. We know that Pfizer has supplied 4 million doses. You know, as you mentioned, only about 1.3 million have been delivered. So uh, there's still a bit of opacity about this whole process, but hopefully things will become clearer. The government has now committed to publishing very regular data on the number of vaccinations that have taken place. That's a good sign, I think. Well, I'm glad to hear some optimism from both of you there. And just finally, briefly, Clive, 
where does the UK sit in international comparisons? Because obviously there are challenges and we've seen some this week and there will be more in the future. But are other countries having the same struggles with getting the vaccines rolled out? I think there are two ways in which the UK stands out. Going back to the new variants, the reason that we, the UK, were able to detect that variant so quickly and track it is that about half of all the genomic surveillance, that's the genetic sequencing of the virus that you need to do to find out what's happening with it, half of all that research worldwide is carried out here. So we are in a very, very good position to track variants. If anything new comes up, we are going to be able to see it emerging and then assess how bad it is. At least the new variant, the one called B117, although it's more transmissible because it produces more virus in your upper respiratory tracts, in your throat, your nose, your mouth, it really doesn't appear to cause more severe illness, thank God. And I think the vaccine rollout in the UK, despite all the problems that will emerge, rates pretty highly worldwide. The US system is in chaos because of tensions between states and the federal government over the rollout. In the EU, where the Commission has centralised the procurement, there are a lot of problems in meshing in that central procurement with what the national governments are doing. So I think taking a global view, there are two aspects in which the UK is not doing badly. One in which it's a world leader, one in which it's doing pretty well. Clive and Sarah, thank you very much. The return to a national lockdown has caused political headaches for the Johnson government, not least for the Prime Minister, as his decision to order the nation to stay at home goes against his natural libertarianish instincts. The PM rode the pitch for several days about the prospect of another lockdown, but found himself in particular difficulty over schools. Many pupils went back to primary school for just one day before being sent home again. Labour's education spokesperson Kate Green was unsurprisingly critical of her opposite number, Gavin Williamson. It's disappointing that he didn't make a New Year's resolution to avoid U-turns or chronic incompetence. Once again, where the Secretary of State goes, chaos and confusion follows and it's children, families and education staff across the country who pay the price for his incompetence. So George Parker, there's been much debate in Westminster this week about what happened on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and whether this was a U-turn by the Prime Minister, particularly on the aspect of schools, or whether in fact there was lots of new data that said we did have to lock down. Which do you think it was? Well, Downing Street insists it wasn't a U-turn, and frankly that uh, is greeted with bemusement and disbelief really across the political spectrum generally, because you, know, you had the situation where the Prime Minister went on the Andrew Marshall on Sunday morning and basically encouraged people to send their children back to school the next day. And then on that Monday, he announced that schools were going to close at least until the February half term. So in most people's books, that looks and sounds like a U-turn. The government argument is that they had no decision to make. There was no choice. That when the Prime Minister convened his ministers and his scientific advisors on the Monday morning, There was new evidence there which made it absolutely inevitable that schools would have to close. There was the evidence that the new variant of the virus had now spread to all parts of the country. There was a single day when 80,000 new cases 
had been notified. And that was described to me as a jaw-dropping moment. Now, you know, I think most people actually, as we saw from the House of Commons vote, agreed that the Prime Minister took the right decision. However, why didn't he take it earlier? I think that's the major and justifiable criticism of the Prime Minister. Why didn't he have these data at his fingertips over the weekend? Well, Robert Shrimpton, there's no doubt that the Conservative Party and the Prime Minister wanted to keep pupils in schools. And we know there was a cabinet meeting to discuss this matter. On the one hand, you had the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, and the Cabinet Office Minister, Michael Gove, who was saying schools can't go back. You need to lock down. They're the hawks in the cabinet over this. And on the other hand, you had the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, who no doubt set out all the disastrous implications for people's education, for exams. And the PM initially signed with Mr. Williamson, because again, it tallies with the view of the majority of his party and himself. But ultimately, he seems to have been forced by events. I mean, I think one can entirely respect a view that the government took, which is that in the pantheon of social evils, closing schools was very high. You shut down schools almost last. But whether we get into the metaphor of U-turn or juddering crash or whatever it is, the fundamentals were clear to the government all the way through the last days of December that the virus was going in one direction. It was going in one direction pretty fast. If the Prime Minister had said, you know, actually, we're not sure about this, we're going to delay the opening of schools for a week, and then come and said, no, actually, it's going to have to be longer, you would sense it was a government that had already grappled with the realities and got the point. But the fact that he was just hours before saying, no, no, we're not going to do this, suggests that they really weren't paying sufficient attention. Unfortunately, this has been the story of the government's response to the crisis all the way through. It's been a degree of hoping for the best and hoping for the best longer than one really should. There's no question that Boris Johnson has, I think, intellectually now grasped the point that lockdowns have to be embraced when things get too out of hand. The problem is he waits too long and hopes for too long before doing so. And that has quite serious consequences. I was talking to someone in the scientific community this week and was saying, you know, is it just bad luck that we've got this new strain of the virus? Or is it because it got out of control? And he said, well, you know, it is bad luck, but you make your own bad luck. If you let a pandemic get out of control, the chances of a bad mutation grow. And I think that's the point. The consequence of hoping for the best in this case has been delivering the worst. There was a bit of that going on on the Monday morning, to be honest, because there seemed to have been a tailing off or levelling off, at least, of the infection rates in London and the South East. Chris Giles, our economics editor, wrote a very good piece about this this week, why that might have happened. But you can see Boris Johnson was desperately clutching onto that straw as a possible sign that things were being turned around. And then on Monday, the medical officers came in and said, the health service is about to be overwhelmed. You had Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary, saying, act now. And you got the real sense that the health community was forcing Mr Johnson just to abandon any hope he might have had and just get on with it. Well, as I said, there's been particular criticism of Gavin Williamson this week, and he told MPs in the House of Commons that exams would not be going ahead this year as initially planned. Although exams are the fairest way we have of assessing what a student knows, the impact of this pandemic now means that it is not possible to have these exams this year. I can confirm that GCSEs A-levels and AS-level exams will not go ahead this summer. This year, we're going to put our trust in teachers rather than algorithms. It's a pretty embarrassing moment for Mr Williamson and the government, isn't it, Robert? There was some polling out that showed 92% of teachers have no confidence in Gavin Williamson. And given the humiliation he's been through in any normal government, in any normal political times, he would have resigned. Yet he is still there and there's no immediate sign of him budging. 
I'll give you the one moment of fairness on this, which is it's not unusual for a Tory education secretary to fall foul of the teaching unions and for them to dislike him. So he didn't start on the most friendly territory in the first place, but he's made enemies of all those who were still prepared to give him a fair hearing at the start. I don't think there's anybody in Westminster who thinks he will survive as education secretary very long. The only question is whether it would have been better to bring a new broom in now or whether it's better to let him sort out this mess for a few weeks before he goes. But I think he is doomed as education secretary. And I think there's a lot of cruelty involved in this for a lot of people. I mean, I, I, I think like George, actually, have a daughter who's due to be taking A-levels this year. She's been sitting at home stressing and working for her mocks and wondering if that's the real A-levels, if there's going to be another chance. And we still don't know the full details of how work is going to be assessed. And the question I found myself asking over this period was, well, you know, it was always a decent possibility that you were going to have to cancel the exam and you didn't seem to prepare for plan B, even if you didn't want to have to implement it. Well, George, the thing that we've clearly seen is that the PM has just been pulled in all these different directions. And we tried to get the bottom of what's been going on in Downing Street this week in a read we did for the FT. And it seems to be all sorts of different things that Downing Street admitting it's a very difficult situation. It is a pandemic. You're going to have to take decisions quite rapidly. Other people are blaming the PM's character. They're saying that, in fact, he is just ill-suited to make these kind of rapid decisions and doesn't like delivering bad news. Some others are blaming the Downing Street operation himself and that one senior Tory spoke to said, well, you know, the fact is Dominic Cummings went and we all thought it would get better and it hasn't got better, you know. So where does the blame for this kind of erratic process lie, do you think? Well, I think basically a global pandemic probably uh, brings out all the prime minister's weaknesses and doesn't really play to his strengths as we've found repeatedly over the last year. I mean, part of it is... The Prime Minister is an optimist. He thinks things will turn out okay. And that feeds into another thing, which he likes to leave things to the last moment, hoping that things something will turn up. And that's a characteristic that uh, journalists like us know about, leaving things to the very last moment, waiting for a deadline to come along. He doesn't like telling people bad news. That's another thing. He has very strong libertarian instincts, which means he doesn't like telling people to lock down. And he's also very worried about the Tory right, the so-called COVID recovery group, which has morphed from the European Research Group and is a party within a party which has its sights trained on the Prime Minister. So I think all of those things are played in together. And as you say, it hasn't been a great episode for the communications team either, you know, to put the Prime Minister up on television on a Sunday, only for him to have to completely reverse fair 24 hours later doesn't look good. I think personally, the communications team at number 10, and the effort there has improved since Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, the former head of communications, left. But it wasn't their finest moment this week. And it's interesting, Robert, how quiet those libertarian types have been this week that the COVID recovery group George mentioned. That's the big caucus of MPs who are sceptical of lockdowns. They argue the medicine is worse than the disease. And they've been talking a lot about the economic impacts of essentially shutting down the country. But there were only 14 rebels who voted against the government on the lockdown measures. And their entire focus seems to have shifted from economic matters to the vaccine and how quickly you can get things opening up again and therefore end these restrictions. Does that show a moderation of their view or just an acceptance of reality? I don't think it shows a moderation of their view. There are also quite a few abstentions, one should remember. I think the truth is that they have just had to face the reality of the case numbers and also the fact that the public, although it's showing less confidence in the Prime Minister, is remarkably clear in its support of lockdowns and tough restrictions to crack the crisis. There's also, I think, the fundamental point that because we do have the vaccines, there is an end in sight to this process, or at least there ought to be. So people are able to say, well, look, you know, by the end of February, by the end of March, we really will be able to start lifting 
some of these restrictions and we will have a way through. It's not like this is going to go on forever. So there is no point in just fighting consistently against this. I did want to come back on one point. I mean, you raised the question of Dominic Cummings and whether things will get better or worse once he left. I mean, I think the fundamental point that a number of us who looked at the Downing Street operation when his departure came up is that it was always about the character of the prime minister in the end. You know, the advisors are important, but the fundamental person who never changed in this operation was Boris Johnson himself. And people, I think, were very, very prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt in the early stages of this crisis. You know, it would have tested any prime minister. But the truth is that by the autumn, you really ought to have had a pattern and a methodology and a way of working. And he has shown himself to be an indecisive prime minister through this process. And it's not been made easier by the pressure that's been put on him by the Tory right, not just the COVID recovery group, but an awful lot of media outriders, many of them who he would have considered his friends and allies and sympathisers before he became prime minister, all railing with increasingly hysterical language against lockdowns. And I think that has ramped up the pressure on him and it's made an, an indecisive prime minister more indecisive. Now, George, finally, you can obviously throw this forward and say that actually things can start to look better quite quickly for Boris Johnson, that if the vaccine rollout all goes to plan and we do get out of this lockdown at some point in March, that things start to get normal quite quickly because the UK seems to be doing relatively well on the vaccine front. But he has got the very difficult thing of the local elections in May, which we'll be talking about a lot on the podcast, because I think it's the biggest set of local elections the UK has ever had because it's 2021 and 2020 rolled in all together. And as well as some key mayorities, you've got the devolved parliament, you've got hundreds of councils. And I spoke to Robert Hayward, who's a longtime Tory poster and local election observer, and he thinks it'll become a COVID referendum, that election. So if the government seemed to have done okay, and if we've got out of it quite quickly, the Tories might not do as badly as they otherwise would. If it's still this sense among people that it's all been shambolic and the PM hasn't handled it well, then it could go very badly. And I guess a bad result does mark a point when Boris Johnson might think about finally rebooting some of the people in that cabinet. Well, the first thing to say about that is, of course, that these elections in May may not go ahead. And uh, the government's been saying this week that that was being kept under review. And when things are kept under review by this government in the pandemic, it normally means they don't go ahead. So it's a possibility they could be postponed, I guess, until later in the year. You mentioned the vaccine thing. Obviously, that's become the central point, really, about now our measure of Boris Johnson's competence in handling this pandemic. It's true we've got off to a good start. We've vaccinated more people than the rest of Europe put together. But international comparisons don't count for very much. The British public are getting tired of lockdowns. The Labour Party and the COVID recovery group will be waiting for Boris Johnson's vaccine programme to stumble. So getting a smooth rollout of that vaccine will be absolutely crucial. And I've always thought, you know, if things go well and if the vaccination programme is successful and the economy starts to pick up, in politics, momentum and direction is always the important thing. The moment that you get a sense that things are not getting worse anymore and things are starting to get better, the political weather changes. And I think the timing of the elections this year will be absolutely crucial. It may be that by May, Boris Johnson is still suffering from the impact of his poor handling of the pandemic thus far. A bit later in the year, it's possible things might have improved. Unemployment, of course, will probably peak in the summer, which is going to be a big drag on uh, his own personal appeal. So it's going to be a tough round of elections for sure. And how he performs in some of the northern seats that he won back in December will be crucial. I think it's worth saying that local elections, they don't tend to go well for the government. You have to assume that the huge story of those elections will be what happens in Scotland. And if, as certainly looks likely at the moment, the SNP win well in the Scottish Parliament, that throws up a whole new constitutional crisis around a second independence referendum. And that, I think, will be the dominant question 
of those elections. But frankly, the entire fate of Boris Johnson's government now rests on the vaccine programme. And if it works well, a lot will be forgiven. And if it works badly, it's curtains. Well, George and Robert, thank you very much as always for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And for a New Year's treat, why not leave us a nice comment or give us a positive rating? Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer was Breen Turner and the editor, Amy Keane. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.